Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Hey, so what's up, family? Uh, War Room, Reconstructionist Radio, Boots on the Ground segment with your uh, with your new host, uh, Joe Salant. I am so honored uh, to be in Norman, Oklahoma once again, the site of the Toby Harmon interview that just came out. Make sure you check that on the uh, War Room, Reconstructionist Radio. That interview was fire. Fire I me. Mean, Toby just brought the heat. Um, and I am here with my man, uh, Scholar John. He hates it when I call him that, but but that's what I that's what I know him as uh, in my head. Uh, John Andrew Reasoner, and we are going to be talking today about a slew of topics. We're going to be talking. I'm calling this segment. Uh, I'm calling this uh, uh, this edition, this episode, Kingdom and Abolition. And we're going to be running over a slew of topics related to abolitionism, Christian reconstructionism. We got, you know, a menu of about 12 things lined up. And then we're also going to be taking your questions. This interview is going to be uh, released as a podcast. Obviously, War Room Boots on the Ground. That should be in the next couple of weeks. But get your live version now of my man, John Andrew Reasoner. John, welcome to the War Room. Thanks, brother. Happy to be on, dude. Awesome, awesome. So, this is a this is a special man of God. I remember when I repented from that uh, whole pro life ministry, industrial, professional complex lifestyle, and uh, being a conservative pulpit poacher. This was one of the first guys that I was reading. I was I'd go through the Facebook threads and I would just see this guy's profile pop up, just spitting that knowledge, along with guys like Bojidar Marinoff. Um, Joel McDermott, uh, you know, just bringing the heat of Christian reconstruction, the gospel covering every single area of life. I have learned so much from him. I had so much to catch up on and have learned so much from this brother in Christ. Uh, when you see my live videos, a lot of these live feeds where I go, you know, rant on a specific topic, that's because I've been in these kingdom and abolition kingdom and abolition, uh, uh, articles. And I've been going through what this man has to say. Talk a little bit about two things. Talk a little bit about uh, Kingdom and Abolition, your your uh, uh, blog page, website, and also talk about what you're doing for American Vision right now and what American Vision is. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Kingdom and Abolition, it's it's a pretty broad uh, setup. It's a, it's a website I started a couple years ago, and all it is is, is a blog. I write for um, that blog, and it's just my little website. But it covers topics from theonomy to economics uh, to ecclesiology, uh, whatever really sparks my interest because it is a personal blog, but I do try to keep it uh, kingdom-centric. So even if I'm talking about economics or, um, say, like socialism or taxation or like intellectual property rights or whatever, if I'm talking about the church, if I'm talking about the regular principle of worship, uh, just being as kingdom-centric as possible. And obviously, as an abolitionist, talking about how this all affects abolitionism and, and uh, the broader abolitionist movement. But I've been um, writing for a few years. I've 
recently started contributing to American Vision. And, of course, as most of uh, you guys know, American Vision is a very, very good uh, Christian resource site. for It's basically Christianity for all of life. Uh, so it's uh, very biblical. It's very solid as far as uh, God's law goes. It's very covenantal, and it has guys like uh, Gary DeMar and Joel McDermott who contribute to that regularly. So I cannot recommend that enough. American Vision. So give us give us the uh, give us both websites real quick. Sure, it's uh, AmericanVision.com. It's also KingdomAndAbolition.com. And look, I mean the the fire that comes out of uh, these websites. Uh, these are these are the these are the the dispensaries of the full orb gospel. So it covers every single area of life. It's not just the regular milk that keeps on getting redigested on you know the so-called reformed websites. This will have something to say about the application of the gospel in every single area of life. We're going to be doing a little bit of that right now as well. I know a lot of listeners that I have that have followed you know my path from being a kind of a conservative idolater, uh, you know, a ministry industrial complex uh, pulpit poacher uh, from that conversion to being a abolitionist and Christian reconstructionist. I know a lot of people that followed me from that background, you know, still don't know really what Christian reconstructionism is. I mean, they could go online and they could find it, but they see this term bantered around once and for all. What is, give us a brief definition of, of CR. What is Christian reconstruction? Uh, but it very, very short, Christian reconstructionism is Christianity for all of life. It's the, it is all that scripture teaches about all of life. So it's not just soteriology. It's not just um, ecclesiology. It's not just Christology. It is Christianity for all of life. And uh, that focuses on the sovereignty of God, focuses on an optimistic view of the future. The gospel actually prevails in history, in time, in space. Um, it's covenantal, has to do with bodies of people and like, God's curses and blessings upon covenantal faithfulness. Uh, I mean, you can go on and on into this, but um, that is what Christian Reconstructionism is, very, very broadly speaking. Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, this is this is something that uh, for me and for a lot of us actually now uh, that are that are really repenting and saying, you know, I look out at the culture, and if if culture really is religion externalized. The religion of the culture certainly is not Christianity. I mean, when we look out and we see the areas of life. And so the bride of Christ must not be functioning like the bride of Christ that we see, like in Acts 17, 6, that they who came here and turned the world upside down, no, they, they who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Right. I mean, when we see the idols of the age and Christian reconstructionism, is simply about addressing every area of life on the foundation of the standard of God's word, right? No, exactly. And that that's the one of the most basic presuppositions of the whole thing is like there is no neutrality. Either you are going to be abiding by God's word or you're going to be abiding by something that you're creating in yourself, which is basically making yourself God. So it's the old saying that Cornelius Van Tilt coined, it's the army or autonomy. Mm. It's going to be God's law or it's going to be something that you personally made up. Uh, whatever you desire or your perceptions about Christianity or theology. Mm. That's the only two options. Right. So theonomy or autonomy, meaning that we create the law or we base our lives on the law of God. What would you say to somebody who would say, yeah, 
um, I base my life on the law of God, but then they have no scripture to kind of back it up. It's basically just like, you know, I have that law written in my heart now. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, sure. And that goes back to, well, they're essentially saying whatever I feel is going to be the law of God at that point because it turns extremely subjective. They say the law of God is written on my heart. When I say, well, how do you know that's the law of God? And that's the question you always have to be asking. Well, how do you know? Where can I see it written down? Right. Where, where, why, why should I say the law of God written on your heart is any more or less valid than the law of God written in my heart? And all too often, the law of God written on my heart becomes, becomes a colloquialism for like whatever I want uh, okay. or whatever my subjective interpretation of scripture is. Right. Right. And so when we're talking about theonomy, um, you know, certain elements of the law have have been fulfilled and we don't use anymore and other elements of the law. And we talk about the law where we're talking about the first five books of the Bible, uh, the 613 laws, um, the law, the law of God in Moses. So certain elements have been fulfilled and certain elements are still abiding for today. Correct? Right. Exactly. And I think whenever you do talk about the law of God, you should start with the, the basic idea that the law of God is good. That is scriptural. That is Old Testament, New Testament. That is scriptural. However, you do talk about the law of God. You need to talk about it in the sense that it is good because God is good. And it's a reflection of God's character, first and foremost. Um, but the law of God, elements of it, is were f- fulfilled by Christ. It's yeah. fulfilled by Christ on the cross. That doesn't mean that the law was bad. Sure. Um, but it's fulfilled in Christ. Like course, the gospel of the Old Testament, like pointing towards Christ. Right. Examples of that would be the ceremonial laws, like whether or not you're allowed to eat bacon, for example, um, or uh, observing certain feast days. And we could go in and be, talk about all these details forever. And theonomist and reconstructionist will have some diversity on exactly how God's laws apply to today. But sure. we do have unity in that it should be applied. Sure. That um, whoever, and the, I think the quote is from Rush Dooney, that whoever, that, that there's no such thing as an irreligious law. All laws by nature are religious in nature. Right, exactly. So when we look at laws in society, they're either going to be theonomic laws lining up with the law of God, or they're going to be uh, lining up with the law of man, humanistic laws, especially in our society today. And there is no neutral ground whatsoever. Is that right? Right, exactly. There is going to be no neutrality. If we're talking about the civil realm, if we're talking about uh, rules and regulations by the government, uh, they're either going to abide by God's law, God's restrictions, God's regulations, or something that man has replaced God's law with, which is by definition idolatry. Idolatry, correct. 100%. So I became a recon and abolitionist at the same time. And why don't you talk about, because for, for me, if Christian reconstruction wasn't true, I wouldn't fight abortion this way. It would be easier for me to just fight it like a pro-lifer. Right. You know, uh, talk about why that is. Talk about the intersection between Christian reconstruction and, and abolition for a second. Sure. Well, um, to put it into context, I've been a Christian reconstructionist years longer than I've been an abolitionist. And whenever I started seeing some of the abolitionist stuff on Facebook and reading the, the website, I'm like, oh, this is this is the Christian Reconstructionist way of fighting, you know, institutionalized civil evils, whether it's abortion or something up, so something else. Um, but I would say that the abolitionist perspective on fighting abortion is deeply covenantal. It's theonomic. It's presuppositional. Uh, it is extremely compatible with Christian Reconstructionism. I would even say that to be a Christian Reconstructionist consistently would be being an abolitionist. Right. Um, and that might be controversial with some, but that's that's fine. I think I can defend that. But, um, yeah, there's there's many ways of fighting abortion, obviously. There's different ways of looking at it. 
And I think a lot of abolitionists over the years have seen the problem with the pro-life movement. They've seen the incrementalism. They've seen that um, it just doesn't work. They've seen that incrementalism doesn't work. They've seen the secularism of some pro-life uh, institutions and groups and companies. So they see abolitionists and they see, oh, these are like really radical pro-lifers that want to preach the gospel. And that is true in some ways. Uh, but abolitionism is built on a presupposition of God's law. It's built on a presupposition of no neutrality and abiding by what God ha- uh, what God says about abortion, about evil, and how we are to institute justice and show mercy within society. So you have to understand that foundation and that root. And, and I think a lot of abolitionists are abolitionists because... They see the radicalism of abolitionism, and they see the failure of incrementalism. But that is essentially like a pragmatic view of things. That's essentially a pragmatic view of abolitionism, where they think that immediatism will be more effective, and therefore they will be an abolitionist. Yeah, um, And that's not necessarily bad. That, that's true. Immediatism will be more effective than incrementalism. We've had incrementalism for 40 years and hasn't done anything. Right. Um, but... One of the desires I have um, is to essentially show the foundations of abolitionism so that those foundations can be applied to all all spheres of life, which is going to be, of course, the Bible, scriptures, and, and God's law, and understanding that there is no neutrality in how we fight abortion, but there's also no neutrality in how we view uh, police. There's also no neutrality how we view public education. There's also no neutrality how we view taxation. There's also no neutrality how we view borders. And... Um, and you know, that's, up. that's that's how I, I view it. It's like I'm an abolitionist because I saw the covenantal aspects of abolitionism and I saw the presupposition that abolitionism is built on is God's word. And so although it could be good to um, talk about biology at the abortion clinic or with a pro-choice or online, uh, you have to be pointing to the gospel. We have to be pointing to uh, Christ as king Ultimately, and of course, you can answer questions, and it's good to answer questions, uh, but it has to be presuppositional in that we're we're not assuming that um, we can just argue from reason alone. That's, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so straight up, look, the way the way this fight is, and I mean, just just straight up and down the board, it is possible to fight abortion biblically, right? To right. fight child sacrifice biblically. But then deliver man into the dominion of man. Right. Or in other words, maybe even sacrifice image bearers of God to the same idol of humanism in the other high places of the humanistic landscape, in those other pagan places in the landscape. Right. So let's talk a bit about, and that, that may be a totally controversial uh, statement for some. Some people say, "I am I am an abolitionist. I believe I don't compromise on the area of abortion whatsoever. I fight. I'm not for incrementalism. I do not uh, write iniquitous decrees. I establish the foundations of God's throne, righteousness, and justice for the preborn in my fight." How dare you say that I am? Practicing child sacrifice in another area right. or human sacrifice in another area. But if there is no neutrality, if there is no such thing, if, if all laws are by nature religious, then if and, and if the God of the age is humanism, 
we could easily be feeding human beings into the dominion of man if we continue to have these blind spots in other areas of life. So let's talk about a few. And if you're offended, look, just keep listening, man, or, or, or woman. Look, keep your, keep, your, keep, your, keep your hands to the plow. Because, look, if we allow ourselves to get offended, and we allow that offense to stop us from examining every single area of, of life according to the standard of God's word, then we are practicing idolatry, plain and simple. So with the first one that I would like to talk about, the humanistic incubation centers or the public schools. Right. How does one approach this from an abolitionist perspective? Is this something that needs to be abolished or is this something that... Um, that we can just kind of coexist with, you know, for the time being, is it neutral or, or, or whatnot? What would you say about the uh, about the schools? Uh, well, first of all, they're, they're not neutral, obviously. Uh, whenever you look at a public schools, you have to ask, are these children being educated according to man's standard or God's standard? I think anybody can look at the public schools, even the best public schools. And honestly, it's like any time you talk about public schools, people are like, well, it's not my public school. It's the other public schools. Well, that's not true. Even if... Uh, like your piano player at your local Southern Baptist church is your is your school's like first grade teacher or something. Your your kid's first grade teacher. The education system itself, how they're educated in the colleges and getting their degrees, the administration, uh, the principal, the curriculum that you are given, and you don't have any choice to teach, is completely humanistic and built upon the opposite presuppositions as God's word is built upon. So uh, oftentimes I see it's like a frog in a pot of boiling water. You don't understand how bad it's gotten because you're in the system mm -hmm. and you're so familiar with the system and it gets worse and worse and worse over time until, uh, you know, your, your eight-year-old's being dressed up like a, like a girl and talking about transgenderism or whatever. I mean, it gets that bad. Um, but the thing is, it's not fixable. Yeah. It's not fixable. So I don't want to be like, oh, look how bad it is. We should, you know, bring the Ten Commandments back in school and, you know, have prayer time and stuff right before we salute the American flag. But, like, uh, <laughs> the problem is, is not the role of civil government to be teaching your children. Period. Straight up. That's not the role of the civil government at all. Yeah. Uh, parents should be teaching their children or at least having the full dominion and oversight over that, whether it's like a private education or homeschooling or co-ops or whatever. Mm -hmm. But essentially, I don't care if it's private education or homeschooling. It has to be built upon the word of God because yeah. education is not neutral. Yeah. And and if you want to know why this, this landscape looks the way that it looks, the rising generation is being inculcated with the religion of humanism, and the churches are just not fighting it whatsoever. So when they're spending 40 hours a week... At in, least, more than that. Well, yeah. More than that, sometimes after school activities and all that other kind of stuff, they're spending all this time learning this so-called religion of neutrality, getting it in their bones, a, a version of history that says that Moses got his laws from pagan sources. The law of God came from pagan sources. Things like that, like the the, 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 the pseudoscience, the uh, the humanism in every single area that they teach. They can't you can't even get through a math class sometimes in these in these schools, uh, in these humanistic incubation centers, and the church is not putting the axe to the root here. 
And a lot of abolitionists don't really see this. I mean, like, abolitionists are kind of good with this, I think. I think for the most part, when it comes to the humanistic incubation zones, abolitionists are those that you know identify as abolitionists oh, sure. uh, are pretty good at this. As, point, a, right? as a sub-segment, a very small, small, tiny sub-segment of Christianity, I think abolitionists get these issues right yeah. far more than other sub-segments of Christianity. Correct. But that doesn't mean we, we shouldn't be applying these ideas and talking about these ideas because the same reason why I'm abolitionist is the same reason why I'm against public education. It's as simple as that. Uh, because I don't see any neutrality in how we fight abortion. I also don't see any neutrality in how we raise our children. Sure. And and so it, this is, this is a, the burden's on the pulpit for this kind of stuff, isn't it, John? Well, sure, sure. Um, the pulpit isn't speaking about this. They're not speaking prophetically about this. They're not correcting their congregations on this. Um, I would be astonished to hear about any church discipline because of like <laughs> because of like sending children to humanistic learning centers. Um, but ultimately, yeah, there is no teaching on this. There's an assumption even within the most reformed communities and denominations that public education is a neutral thing and everyone can just make a choice and we might uh, very politely, uh, meekly you know, suggest that um, maybe homeschooling is better or private Christian school is better but um, there's nothing I would say substantial, there's nothing firm, there's nothing solid on that hardly sure. at all. You know when, when Colin Gunn has an extremely good documentary about public education he goes to all of the reformed churches first thinking that would be the best and they turn them down again and again and again and again wow. and it's the same thing with abortion it's the same thing with uh, borders it's the same thing with law enforcement they just don't want to hear it because it's political they yeah. just want to focus on the gospel things yeah like that. and you mentioned kind of like the frog in the boiling pot of water look would there be church discipline for a family that sent their children to a temple of Aphrodite for 40 hours a week? Do you think that that would give church discipline? Well, maybe in this church landscape, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe not. But yeah. but, but imagine if you if you sent if you sent if if a family was sending their school their children to learn a pagan religion or to learn Islam for 40 hours in a week. Yeah. There is no difference. There is literally no no difference whatsoever. Right. Between that and sending them to one of these humanistic incubation centers, is there now? Right, of course not. This, the statism and the humanism that's a part of our American federal government and even state governments and even local governments um, is completely humanistic. It's completely godless. And because it is not abiding by God's word, it is a false god. Mm. So it can be Aphrodite, it can be Ares, it can be whatever. It doesn't matter. It's a false god. Sure. You don't have to be wearing a toga or be living on Mount... Uh, what is it? Um, Mount Olympus yeah. to be a false god. Yeah, yeah. And our false gods hanging out in the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, well, the god of this age right now that we're seeing, the usurping god of the culture is humanism. And it is the god identified, right, by, you know, the great authors uh, that we've been reading for the past, uh, uh, you know, uh, at least 20, 30, 40 years or so on the Christian landscape. R.J. Rush Dooney, Gary North. Um, uh, uh, you know, obviously Van Til, even Schaefer was highly influenced, right, by uh, uh, by Rush Dooney. Quite a bit. Um, and so we're seeing kind of a move towards this understanding that the god of the culture, the usurping god of the culture, is is humanism. But we're not really seeing the church take the acts of the gospel even close, even close 
to the tree trunk of this of this god of humanism. And so that's why we have these humanistic incubation centers where people in churches, in, in so-called good biblical churches, right down the street from these incubation centers are sending their kids to learn in this environment all week. Right. And then they go hear a sermon on Sunday. No, how is that how is that okay? I mean, it's not. It's not okay. And of course, always what what I've heard again and again and again is, well, my kids can be salt and light in the in the humanistic centers. Well, you know, I'm not going to send my my eight year old to the depths of an African jungle to be a missionary. Why would I expect them to be able to combat uh, like deep rooted humanism in a godless satanic system when they're surrounded by a bunch of their peers and adult authority figures that they're told to obey mindlessly and I'm expecting them to be salt and light in that sort of situation with uh, no training, no discernment, no maturity and they could be great kids but my goodness, they're not trained missionaries they're not trained apologists, they're children Yeah, and we're sending them into that with that kind of frankly yes. like garbage excuse yes yes and what we're going to have at the end of this uh at the end of this session we're also going to be answering some questions so one of them that are that's really good that just came through here uh from thomas jessica black uh and please hold the rest of the questions to the end of the segment but i didn't want this one to get lost at the end uh hey bros my local fellowship has tons of husbands and wives employed in public education, how would I go about encouraging parents who, uh, let me see if I can get the rest of this, uh, encouraging parents who support their families through our tax dollars to leave these institutions. So this is, look, the war room is practical and tactical, and that is a very, very, very practical question. How do we go about encouraging parents uh, who support their families through these institutions to leave these institutions? Do we need to have teachers leave these institutions? Is it something that needs to be repented of if you're a teacher and leave? I guess the same question we're going to be covering uh, in a second about the police, uh, too, as well. That's a similar question. Yeah, so how would you address that? Well, like, first of all, I think it should be stated. It's like, I, I don't hate public school teachers. I don't hate administrators and any of these things. I think the failure, the biggest failure is the failure of the church. They're not teaching these things. Yeah. yeah. So you have a lot of people who uh, are just ignorant of some of these problems, and they're within these uh, so-called good churches that aren't hearing about the problems in public education. They think it is, it is the, the standard choice. Mm. They don't even have a second thought. It's like, of course my kids are going to go to public schools. There's no other option available to them in their head. Uh, my, my, guess, my, my, my mother is a public school employee. Sure. And, of course, I love her to death. She also sees a lot of problems in it. Sure. I think eventually what should happen is that uh, men and just leaders in the church in general, whether they're uh, elders, pastors, whatever, should be teaching on this, should be exhorting the people on this, should be really, really pushing the dangers of sending their children off to these centers. And right. eventually the people within those institutions should be using their, their influence yeah. and their position within those institutions to try to influence it. And I think eventually what happens is they either get fired or they have to leave. Right, right. And can you be subversive yeah. in there? Is, it, is, it, is, it, is there a case to be made that a public school teacher could be subversive in that environment? Like we know a, we know a child. Or even a teenager, that's just not wise to send them in there no, to get to get their to be subversive in that environment. What about what about a teacher? I, absolutely. I mean, I think some reconstructionists will disagree with me that no, everyone should just quit yeah. right now. Um, I'm totally willing to have those com that conversation and be corrected on that. But I do think that if you are a Christian who just 
open their eyes about this, they can be subversive. Uh-huh. And it, a lot of it depends on what school district they're in. And sometimes you have people that would be more supportive in the administration than other situations. Sure. But they can be subversive. They can influence those children in a good way. Uh, oftentimes the teacher might be the only solid Christian they know in their entire life. Sure. Sometimes they might hear the gospel from the teacher, and if the administration found out, they'd be fired. Sure. And they can get away with that sometimes. Sure. But essentially what I think the point is, is that they should be viewing the public education system as hostile territory. And they are within that hostile territory trying to subvert it and trying to influence it. And eventually that oftentimes means either being fired or quitting right. whenever you get to that point. Right. And, and look, make no mistake, living, a, living out the gospel in every area of life in missionary territory uh, – it, 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 it's a sacrifice. Uh, there's, this is not, this is not pretty. The church, if the church is really the church, when they get fired for refusing to compromise and teach a lesson that goes against the Bible, when they are axed for that, if the church is the church, then the church rallies around them and supports them. Right. That is what the bride of Christ is. Yeah. And so, I mean, plain and simple, but this is a war. This is a battle. Right. And it, show, it should go without saying, but uh, oftentimes I found out you should say it anyway. Um, I'm not against education. Reconstructionists aren't against education. We believe children should be educated. And if you are a good teacher, if you are talented and gifted with teaching children, you yeah. should teach children. Yeah. But yeah. find like a venue yeah. where you're able to do that. And yeah. raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord yeah. and not be basically restricted by curriculum that is completely godless right that's going through the, the government censors right 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 and yeah that at the end of the day the sin is look if you're teaching that stuff if there's no sin in, in bringing the gospel in a pagan temple there is no sin whatsoever in me walking into a pagan temple and even getting paid to bring the gospel of jesus christ the problem is when i walk into a humanistic zone and see their curriculum and start teaching things that is directly contrary to the word of god and um and yeah, look, you know, at the end of the day, there is going to be sacrifice. This is not a, this is not something you can just go to your church members and start talking about, oh, well, it's going to be easy. You know, Christ is king and you're king of all areas, and we're going to take down the, the humanistic incubation zones. And if you're a teacher in there, it's all good. It's fine. Everything's going to be the same. It's not. That's not what repentance looks like, man. And this culture, you know when it's really going to be bad? When it's really going to be tough, and we're going to have to worry about money and food and survival, when the judgment of God falls, right? Exactly. That's when it's going to be tough. Right. When the when the church is just not, won't rise up, and the judgment of God comes crashing down. So look, that is the incubation centers. Now let's talk about now that that's kind of an idol where it's it's a it's that's a friendly that's a friendly idol to swing the axe at mostly relatively speaking yeah, relatively absolutely. speaking absolutely. so we're going to start getting into some areas right now where now we're talking about that's it that now we're going to swing the axe at at, an, at some idols that idols of humanism that are not quite as as culturally acceptable in the churchian circles to touch and so next. Humanistic lawlessness enforcement, aka the police. What do we do from a Christian perspective? How is a Christian, if I'm a pastor and you're bringing me through my pastor school, teach me what I need to educate my flock on when it comes to the police? Sure, absolutely. Uh, just like with education, it should, it should it should be said that it's like I'm not against laws. Obviously, I'm not against protecting people. I'm not against uh, investigating crime. I believe that it is not the realm of the civil government to have an active standing army within our nation 
actively looking for criminals. Mm-hmm. And of course, we could go through the details and be like, well, that's a dumb law. That's not biblical. That's a dumb law. That's not biblical. All of that. So I don't want to fall into the same trap of saying, well, it's fixable because I don't believe it is fixable. Um, I think there are obviously things that the police do that are good. However, the same things could be done through the private market. Same things could be done by private individuals that do not have a special standing in the law to use violence, primarily use violence and force, uh, to flex their legal muscles essentially to uh, provoke sometimes or exert their power against citizens who aren't lawbreakers, mm-hmm. who are breaking laws that aren't actually against God's law, but only about against man's law. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like law enforcement is a very touchy issue, obviously. And there should be like a social order. There should be orderliness in society. Uh, so I'm not advocating for like a, a let's throw bricks through windows sort of anarchy. Not right. at all. Not at all. But the way God's law is formed and the way God's law is spoken about within within scripture, um, you don't have individuals throughout uh, ancient theonomic Israel walking around looking for trouble. Uh, you have... The law basically applies to lawbreakers, and there's not an assumption of guilt placed upon society where they are answerable to a special class of person who is allowed to uh, require papers or identification or investigate people who aren't actually lawbreakers at all. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of questions about law enforcement, and there's a lot of people like, well, my husband does such a great job here, or my brother does such a great job here. Our police and, are different. Yeah, our, our police are different, you know, and... The, the question is if, if 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 the police officer you know or the police officers that you think are different uh, are different, then when are they going to stop the bad police? When are they going to stop the bad apples? Because that is like the passivity that is allowing the evil to take place. Sure. And, of course, there are a few small examples. Chet Gallagher, for example, who stood up against the state as a, uh, said no to his job and did something. I mean, he stood in front of an abortion clinic and interposed on behalf of the unborn and got fired for it. Um, so that's one example of, of a police officer who stood up against the system and said, you know, said no. Yeah. But um, what was I going to say? But, I mean, you get into, like, technicalities about, like, what about uh, traffic violations and all, all of that stuff. And that can get really deep and complicated. But sure. um, there is a role to play for public safety on roads. It's just something that could be done by individuals who aren't employees of the government. Sure. And I don't want to talk about economics for three hours, but that, that is something that the private... Well, sure, but whenever, whenever we become dependent on the state, and you see this in human civilization all the time, if you look through history, whenever we're dependent on the state... Yeah. What ends up happening is when you take that, when when we say, hold on, the state is not supposed to do this. The people are always like, well, how does it get done? Right, exactly. So, I mean, like Bo Marinoff, in, in several of his Acts to the Root podcasts, he has two of them up there, several articles on com. He talks about the fact that America wasn't founded with police. Right, exactly. We existed without police for years and years and years. But there was still... Uh, you know, private you know, security forces or whatever, like agencies, there's detective agencies. Uh, there is a role for these services, but sure. it doesn't have to be filled by the government. Now, in our day and age, most of these services are fulfilled by the government. It's sort of like a, a, a monopoly, if you will, because it's free. And, of course, it's not actually free. It's paid for by uh, extortion, extorting the public with through taxation. But um, 
now that's like the only option, and that kind of goes back to like Bastiat's The Scene and the Unseen, where we're able to see what we have, which is police. And we can't imagine what we don't have, which would would replace it, would be the private market and different agencies and companies that would provide those sorts of services. I would, I mean, the most famous detective of all time, fictional, of course, was a private detective, Sherlock Holmes, and he <laughs> always made fun of the you know, Scotland Yard, the government officials. And of course he's fictional, but I like the, yeah. Yeah. But Hey, look, so, so if the, the law, the law of God is, 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 uh, is not, is not positive in function. It's mostly negative in function. Correct. Right. Could you explain the difference and what happens with, so police, what's the difference between positive law and negative law and how is police practicing basic? It's, it's, could it be, let me phrase it this way. Here's the question. Difference between positive and negative law. And can you, can you practice policing the way it is today according to the law of God? No, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think, um, I guess to start at the beginning, uh, God's law is primarily negative. It does have a positive aspect, and I don't want to uh, forget that. That's very important. But it's primarily negative in that it primarily has to do with not doing things, like not murdering, not stealing. Uh, and that is how the state is able to come in and say, Hey, you can't can't do that, or maybe not the state, but like at least the civil government. Sure. So uh, you could say the negative aspect of the sixth commandment is "Thou shalt not kill." Sure. Do not murder. The positive aspect of that would be actively pursuing justice for those who are killed. So the government can say, "Hey, you can't murder people. We're going to now execute you because that's the just penalty." But the government can't say, "Hey, you have to stand up for justice." So on and so forth. Now that is a sin. You have to answer to God, right? Right. To right. not stand up for justice, and I don't want to. I don't want to minimize that at all. Yeah. Um, to stand before God and be guilty of not loving your neighbor as yourself is a fearful thing. But the government isn't going to require you to stand up for your neighbor. That's sure. not a civil crime. And sure. uh, the negativism and the positive positivism is. Uh, and it's a little, it's a little complicated and wordy, but essentially the law of God has to do with um, restraining law breaking as opposed to restraining non-law breaking. Yeah, yeah, P- punishing crime, not try to predict crime before it happens, or be the God uh, that is going to provide a better redemption, or, right? Or the arbiter of like every possible dispute, you know? There um, it is. And yeah, that, that's essentially the, the problem. Is like when you have the modern police system. You have a, a sense where you are actively going out, you could say like executively going out and seeking out a crime. Well, yeah. biblically, a crime has to occur before uh, you go and like sanction it and try to prohibit it and restrain it with force. Yeah, yeah. All right, awesome. Look, so uh, moving along, uh, the next humanistic idol that we ought to be aiming that acts of abolition towards, the acts of the gospel at, I'd like to talk about, just for a second, uh, humanistic immigration policy or closed borders. Why is closed borders, and how did, why is closed borders humanistic? Because that is, I mean, now we're touching on, even some Reconstructionists don't, don't see this one. This is, a, this is a blind spot, isn't it? Right, yeah, it, it is. It is, and I, I think a lot of it is an assumption on, of neutrality once again. So right. whether it is public education or law enforcement or immigration pol- uh, policy, there is a 
uh, assumption of a moral neutrality on the issue. And that assumption of moral neutrality basically allows each individual to look at the situation, look at statistics from their favorite conservative website or liberal website, depending on where you're coming from, and say, oh, it makes sense for us to do X, Y, and Z. And we can use our own man man's wisdom, we can use our own autonomy, if you will, to determine what is the best policy. It's essentially a pragmatism. Pragmatism. That's exactly what it is. What we don't like in the pro-life movement. Right, exactly. So the reason why I'm not a pro-lifer is because of pragmatism. It's going to be the same thing with uh, the police, same thing with education, it's the same thing with immigration. So when you get to immigration, the question you have to ask, and it's the same question you have to ask with everything, it's like, what does God's law have to say about this? If I have a position on it, ask why do I have that position? Right, right. Um, what is the foundation of that position? Because there's not going to be a neutrality on this because there's not any neutrality on anything. Um, so what does God's law have to say about immigration? Well, it doesn't say a whole heck of a lot. It does say some things about what we would call like nationalization or naturalization where you become like a full citizen of Israel. But there were no physical borders where people were restricted from travel. And I want to make something, of course, very clear. It's like we're not talking about a completely unprotected border. We're not talking about letting every known criminal, known man within the nation. But um, we are talking about restricting non-criminals. That's what I'm talking about. Restricting non-criminals from travel, from free travel, is completely unheard of in Scripture, unless you're talking about pagan nations. The pagan nations did that sometimes. Yeah, you uh, had to ask permission for the king for the king to travel to right. Egypt. You had from Pharaoh to travel. You know. Yeah, and so it, it's all about what, what, what it is. It's all about does the state, does the humanistic state, or does the state in general, just the entity of the state, uh, have the right according to the law of God to control non-criminal individuals? No. As far as what the state is allowed to do, or or better put like the civil government, whether that is a nation state or sure. a voluntary, voluntary society or however you want to talk about it, um, does not have the authority to restrict non-lawbreakers. The yep. law of God is not to restrict non-lawbreakers. So we have to say, well, what's breaking the law of God then? Yeah. Well, there's no law of God that says you can't come across a national border. Yeah. Especially yep. when we're talking about a nation that is fully godless and hates God. Why should we have such a vested, almost egotistical interest in a national border that hates God? Yeah. So yeah. whenever we are talking about immigration, whether it – well, you know, public education too. There's a lot of people that feel very strongly about that. I think oftentimes because of family members and stuff. Same thing sure. with police. Uh, same thing with immigration. We have to stop and very, very seriously pray and think about, okay – are my arguments pragmatic or are they biblical? Yeah. Am I looking at God's law and saying, what does God's law have to say about this or not say about this? And, uh, or am I talking about what's pragmatic? Because people could come to the right position with pragmatism. I think I could sit down with somebody and show them a lot of statistics and a lot of like American history and a lot of um, just use logic and convince them of abolitionism or convince them to be against public education, to convince them to be against public police, to convince them to be against closed borders. Yeah. Using pragmatism, using yeah. logic, using history. Yeah. But unless we understand the presuppositional 
foundation of that, saying what does God's law have to say about it, yep. they could be very right about abortion and very wrong about immigration. Right. So right. what I'm trying to basically get through is that it's the same issue again and again and again. We're dealing with theonomy or autonomy. Is my position coming from pragmatism and or is it coming from God's law? So like people have their view on immigration for all sorts of reasons. And they can quote statistics and they can show me some links to some conservative websites. And guess what? I can do the same thing. Right. Like, I have statistics, too. I have my own pragmatic reasons, too. And we can have, you know, a 20-hour discussion about whether or not it's wise. And I'm okay with having that discussion. But ultimately, we need to be asking about what God's law has to say about that. Right, exactly. And what we can say, most of, most of what we see from the, uh, from the closed borders, folks, uh, is pragmatic uh, reasoning. We, 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 are, have you seen a case directly from the law of God that's compelling? That is non-pragmatic. Uh, nothing, for closed com- n- nothing compelling. Whenever I, I push the biblical question and ask for, you know, book, chapter, verse, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, embarrass anyone, but like what I've seen are like proof texts actually talking about pagan nations, and it's like, I don't know. Let's think about this. Like, are you saying we should be like the Moabites? Because I don't want to be like the Moabites. <laughs> I don't want to be like the Moabites. Or they might even talk about Israel, but Israel is being disobedient. Yeah. Um, so, like, how do you deal with that? Or they talk about uh, city walls. That's a, that's a very, very, very uh, common objection. Like, well, you Nehemiah know. Nehemiah had a wall. Uh, right, right, exactly. Nehemiah was building a wall, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's a city. Yeah. So, are we trying to protect national borders with city walls? And I yeah. do know that cities and fortresses and and things like that in that time period were used to protect national borders, but it wasn't to protect free travel. It wasn't to restrict a non-criminal individual from entering into that. No, of of course not. It was for military protection. Totally. So we were talking about walls specifically, whether we're talking about Trump's wall or, you know, a chain link fence or something. Sure. Um, To to apply that to middle-aged walls would basically be like, thinking that Mexico was going to attack us with catapults and trebuchets or something. Like, it's not relevant yeah. at all. Yeah. City walls were meant for military defense, not yeah. for restricting free travel yeah. and non-criminals. But so could we still have, like, let's just say, you know, we could have border controls where as long as there's no evidence that somebody's a criminal, they just get let in, right? Sure. But if there's evidence that somebody's a criminal, like if it's an MS-13 or something like that, then they get arrested on the spot. So then the people who would, who would be going through the deserts and stuff like that would be the criminals. like Because everybody would want to come in through the front door right. as long as they were, couldn't be proven to be a criminal on the spot, correct? And like the tattoos could could show somebody to be yeah, a criminal yeah, something, or something like that. Yeah, or, something like that's perfectly legitimate. Sure. The point is, is that God's law is extremely plain about how we determine guilt. Right. And if we are to essentially treat everyone as guilty and require things from them that... You should not have to require from them, um, treating them as if they are guilty. That is in direct violation of God's law. Unless you have two or three witnesses, yeah, they are presumed innocent. And it will never be safer. It will never be safer to violate the law of God, no matter what kind of pragmatic concerns we have. John Andrew, isn't that correct? No, never, absolutely, never be be safer. And so this common sense that we have, that it's just common sense to have this tight, closed border is merely this common sense is a religious presupposition that's wrong, isn't it? That's wisdom of man. It's autonomy. It's, and, the and it's as simple as that. And I don't want to, obviously, I don't want to be like a jerk about this, and I do want to talk about this for a moment, but, like, 
No one became a reconstructionist overnight. No one became an abolitionist overnight. Uh, some people did quicker than others. I think Joe kind of yeah. <laughs> dived in deep and really quick. And uh, my, my point being is the same God that saves sovereignly is the same God that teaches us and sanctifies us and, and illuminates certain things to us. And so everything that I believe that's true comes from God and everything that I believe is false comes from me. Yeah. And uh, so I, we, we should own that in discussion. But people are blessedly inconsistent. Yeah. Blessedly inconsistent. So thank God for every abolitionist who's also a dispensationalist. Yeah. And I am going wow. to work on you and try to convince you that your, your views are wrong on whatever. But thank God that you're an abolitionist. And maybe you're really, really right on immigration. But you're an incrementalist when it comes to abortion. Thank yeah. God for you, but I'm still going to work on you about that, too. Oh, man, that's I needed to hear that actually right now. That's the Lord. Um, and so basically it is a it is a covenantal standard that we're talking about right. from God's word is that nations are judged by these things. Yeah, so this is not exactly. this is not a, a neutral issue. This this law applies everywhere. God's law does not apply somewhere and not apply anywhere else. It's his, it's his revealed character and it's right. his reveal, revealed will. Nations don't go into the afterlife. Nations are judged here. Right. And, yeah, go ahead. No, when, whenever you're looking at scripture and searching out places where it's talking about justice, it talks about justice to the orphans. It talks about justice to the widows. It talks about justice to the sojourners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oftentimes we get the first two right. Um, and then we forget the third. Mm. Or we think that we're providing justice to the sojourners, but we're really quit twisting God's law and how that actually applies. Sure. So we need to understand, like, this is not um, mass murder. This is not abortion we're talking about. But that doesn't matter. Just because it is a less evil, it doesn't mean it's not an evil. Correct. So we need to apply God's law to all things. We need to understand that justice to the orphan and the widow and the sojourner is deeply important to God. Can't sacrifice these humans to the God of humanism in any area, huh? Right. It's, and doesn't it sound, when we start talking about these things, it sounds to me exactly like we're arguing abolition against pro-life. It's the same thing. Over it's the here. same thing. Yeah. Oh, man. This is just, get this, man. If you're, if you're behind this screen or if you're going to listen to this, if you're listening to this podcast, get this. I mean, there is no neutrality. The law of God speaks clearly on these areas. It's not kind of a subjective feeling we have in our heart. We can't just make this up. It's not common sense if it's not in the law of God. Come on now. All right. Uh, The prison industrial complex, as we get close to wrapping this up, we're going to try. This might be two episodes right here. This is, but hey, you know, we leave room for the Spirit of God because He's the one that directs. Um, the prison industrial complex. This kind of relates to humanistic lawlessness enforcement, correct? Does the law of God allow us to uh, lock human beings in cages as their punishment? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, absolutely not. Um, and this, just like everything else, has to do with no neutrality, it has to do with God's law versus the man's law, it has to do with the dominion of God versus the dominion of man. Uh, there's two different ways of looking at civil law, and maybe this is something I should have said at the beginning, but, like, there's two different ways, and uh, there's obviously shades of gray, but two primary ways. Uh, either the civil government is allowed to essentially do everything that it wants to do as long as it doesn't cause you to sin, or the civil government is only allowed to do what is prescribed to it by God's mm. law. And uh, it's the second option. It's the second, <laughs> it's the second option. <laughs> and, I mean, we, we deal with this kind of thing in discussions all the time where we kind of skirt around the issues, we skirt around the, the edges, we don't really get to the root of it. Yeah. So what does God's law actually allow? And it does not allow putting people in cages like animals. 
Right. Uh, it does not allow that at all. And I think we could see through history, and this is kind of one of the pragmatic arguments that are good, if you will, um, how that affects prison populations. It turns them into more hardened criminals. And we can show through history, through statistics, just how it doesn't work. It right. doesn't work. And it doesn't work simply because that's not how God actually like, wanted justice to be dealt out. Yeah. So we have prisons filled with people that actually sh- should be executed or people who aren't criminals. Yeah. Or people that should be paying back the people that they robbed from instead of sitting in a prison not paying back the people that they robbed from. Mm. So there is no justice in the prison industrial complex at all. Mm. The only time you are allowed to hold somebody is if they're actually guilty of a crime and waiting for their sentence a very short amount of time. Um, But no, there is no restitution. And I think that is like the prime problem with the prison industrial complex and our entire judicial system is that there is no paying back the people who are harmed. Right. There's no paying back to them. At least most often there isn't. Yeah, the state gets it, right? Well, a lot of times the state gets it or there's no restitution to the people that are stolen from or harmed. They instead have the person who harmed them put into a cage, which does nothing for right. the person actually. Right, and, and the fines that go to the pagan state basically say that the victim of the crime is the pagan state. No, exactly. It's a crime against the state. It's a crime against the, the state of Oklahoma or the state of Texas. Uh, that is not... How justice works biblically. It is a crime against the person you're actually trespassing against or harming or stealing, and ultimately it's also a crime against God. Right. But um, the way oftentimes theft works is that you get you get stolen from, and then the person who steals from you gets put into a prison that's paid for by taxation dollars, which is theft being stolen from you in the first place. So you're just getting stolen from all around. It's theft upon theft upon theft. Right, and that's the thing. It's like whenever you're dealing with um, like political science or, or governmental policies, you have a problem and they try to fix the problem with five other problems. And then they have those five problems and they try to fix the five problems with 15 problems. So it just stacks and stacks and stacks to the point where we have a prison industrial complex that doesn't work, yeah. that doesn't provide restitution for those harmed. Um, it doesn't provide any sort of rehabilitation in the most biblical sense. The most, It doesn't provide any regeneration, I should say, to those who are put into uh, those who trespass against us or those who steal from us. Amen. Uh, so there's no there's no redemption. Amen. Amen. There's no redemption for those people. So the system, a system like of an indentured servitude, if I stole from you and I couldn't pay you back, right? Right. And the biblical penalty is if I get caught, I steal from you, I owe you double. So that's like basically... Your it's the it's it's the money I stole from you plus the the trouble and the heartache that you know I, I caused you financial loss past that money that I stole from you right right exactly. so I owe you double and if I can't pay that back what would be better for me to be locked in a cage somewhere or for me to come serve you until I could pay it back is that does that make does that make sense or what of course it makes sense and I think that is it's just common sense a lot of this is just common sense where. You need to pay back the person that you've stolen against. So if you can't pay back, you should be able to serve the people that you that you harmed or that you stole from so that you can pay off that debt. Yeah. But also what that provides for you, the thief, is like a redemption where right. you are now made whole. And now you can be in the, in the service of maybe like a Christian family or, you know, historically thinking like an Israelite family and that you can be brought whole and you can redeem that situation. Wow. Uh, instead, right now, we have a situation where there's no redemption. Right. In fact, oftentimes, it just compounds the guilt. It compounds the problems. Right. 
Right. But yeah. we have, I mean, I don't think there's anybody really debating this, but like repeat offenders are extremely, extremely yeah. common. Where they don't learn anything. There is no rehabilitation. There is no redemption. Right. Right. And I think it's a, just another example of the state playing God. Right. Look, so what we have so far here is we have a culture. If we put the acts of the gospel to the root and the spirit granted us repentance, if, if King Jesus granted us repentance and victory, we have a culture with no humanistic incubation zones, with obviously no child sacrifice, with no humanistic lawlessness enforcement, with no police, obviously, with no with no with open borders with no government controlling non-criminal individuals, with no prison industrial complex, how are we going to live, man? How are we going to get by? I mean, isn't that redemption? Isn't, 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 aren't those elements of redemption? I mean, hasn't the state provided a better redemption than God with these institutions that go against the law of God? I mean, how are we going to live in a theonomic society? Right, I think you hit the nail on the head. What this is is a, a replacing of God. Yeah. And a mass idolatry where the state becomes our God, where we see all the problems of society, we see all the problems with our social order or lack of social order, and we think, okay, well, I think the state can provide the answer to that. Mm. What that creates is a uh, system in which we view the state as our mommy and our daddy and our God, all wrapped into one sick Leviathan yeah. um, that does nothing that it's actually saying that it's going to do, or the things that are actually quite wicked that they're saying that they're going to do, they're actually quite effective at. Uh, so you right, get, you get right. both ends of it. Right. But yeah, you have a, and you know, the word statism is thrown around sometimes, and, and it's kind of a scary word, but it really is a, a thing that's a problem within Christianity, where we think the state answers all of our problems. Right. We think they can fulfill the role for us, um, whether it is caring for, um, like, the poor, Caring for the needy, caring for the the homeless and the hungry, uh, or healthcare or education, it's fulfilling a role that we're not actually doing ourselves. Right. So God tells us to do these things, and say so we say, actually, I'm going to pay the government a little bit and let them do it for us. Yeah, I'm going to vote somebody in the office that's going to take somebody else's money to do my job. Right. We have an obligation, but instead of fulfilling that obligation, we're going to let the state do it. Instead. Right, and right. Of course, because they're not the people that are supposed to be doing it, they're not effective at If it. you pick the wrong institution to feed the, to, to, to provide for the poor, you're going to end up, what, making everyone poor, right? Well, exactly. Socialism, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I heard, I heard uh, my man Bo Marinoff talk about that. Uh, on one of the podcasts. Look, taxation. In a theonomic society, what are we allowed necessarily to be taxed for? Is taxation theft? What is the legitimate function, if any, of taxation? Well, sure. Um, there's not really a short answer to this, but I will say it has to do with jurisdiction oftentimes. Like, God's law does prescribe um, giving to certain ends. So, like, the, um, the Levites were not only um, doing ceremonies at the temple or the tabernacle. They were also providing for the needy and the poor. There was a poor tax. There was things like that. But there weren't any, like civil laws saying that if you don't pay this tax, we're going to come to your house with guns or, you know, spears or something uh, and put you <laughs> in chains and put you in a cage. Yeah. So although there were taxes for the poor given to like the Levitical orders, yeah, there was no civil action 
placed against the people who refuse to do that. Now, that could be a issue of discipline within a local church body. This could be just before God, and that's a discussion that needs to be had. But essentially, the taxing in Scripture that's under like a, a theonomic kind of mosaic law sure. uh, was primarily voluntary. Sure, absolutely. Where uh, you are ex- obviously commanded to do this, but we need to understand the difference between a sin and a crime. Where it is a sin to not care for the poor and the needy and to essentially refuse them, but it's not going to be a crime to do that. Right, right. now we have a system in which there's all uh, the bleeding hearts that are like, yeah. uh, you need to pay taxes because what about the poor? What about health care? What about all these different things? Um, but there's other ways of doing that right. that would be more effective, that would actually be in line with justice and mercy. And essentially it is the, the job of the church to be fulfilling those things, not the church of, uh, not the place of the state, not the right. place of like a secular God-hating state. Right, right. So taxation is theft in, because of property rights, correct? Like right. if, if I don't legitimately consent to have my property used, the fruit of, what I, the fruit of my labor used by the state, if I'm not legitimately consenting for this, there's no social compact within the uh, uh, within the within the uh, uh, prescribed by the law of God that says that the state can take my money. No, right, right, exactly. I don't think the state is allowed to uh, essentially act as the as the robber on the street to, to rob you like a thug just because they're the state. Yeah, they don't have the authority to take what is yours and treat you like a slave. Or put you in a cage like an animal just because of the state. Yeah. There's not a set of ethics for a nation state, and then a set of ethics for the church or this. Or you know, there's there's essentially like theft is theft. They like come with a gun if they come with a gun from Washington D.C. or they come with a gun from from uh, uh, from from Compton or whatever. It's still a gun, and it's still somebody coming to take your money or your property that you have actually worked for as an image bearer of God, right. and now you do not have that freedom that is represented right. by that property. Correct? Exactly. And, and ultimately, whenever you're talking about private property rights uh, or taxation in this sort of, or just economics in general, yeah. Um, the ultimate property right owner is God. Yeah. He owns every last thing I have ever worked for. He owns yeah. every every last dollar I've ever earned. And same thing applies to everyone. So that is our basic presupposition, where the underlying foundation for economics or taxation isn't going to be private property. It's not going to be my own self-determination. It's yeah. going to be God's law. What does God's law say about uh, the use of violence to essentially take money from other people. Straight up. And I don't see anywhere in the Old Testament, I don't see anywhere in the Mosaic Law where it says, uh, you have to give the poor tax or we're going to come to your house with spears and bows and arrows with, and take no, you to yeah. a cage. Yeah. I don't, I don't see that anywhere. There are laws to give to essentially what amounted to like the church in that time or the institutional church in that time with the, uh, the Levites. And they did some, like, caring for the poor and feeding the needy. But that would be, in today's society, uh, similar to the tithes that we give to our local fellowships or to a, a group of people specially called out by God to care for the needy and poor. Amen. And that could be fulfilled in that way, but it's voluntary. It's not by force and violence. Amen. So what about my roads, man? If they can't steal my money to make my roads, how are the roads going to get built? Right, exactly. Except we had roads before the government. Ah, I mean, the, the first um, so massive interstate can... system was built in Great Britain, and then it wasn't built by the government. Ah. Yeah. 
So we can't use that one either. Roads, one either. man. <laughs> Not even modern roads were built by the government. Or yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Moving right along. Uh, look, what's been flying around a lot on on social media uh, in Christian recon circles, especially when uh, somebody who might not be uh, introduced to this theory or this concept is biblical that there's no neutrality in any area of life. Okay, that a God is worshipped. Or a God, and a God is worshipped with with each law that is created, and each policy in in civil government is really a policy that worships the right God or it worships the wrong God. So a lot of people who aren't familiar with this area of no neutrality and think that we can kind of go with this Roman idea of natural law and whatever's written on your heart and so on and so forth. Uh, when they see a recon on social media or when they run into an abolitionist that uses harsh words like oh you're a papist because you have a wrong because you're you have an you're an ecclesiocrat or a papist because you have a system of local mandatory local church membership that is very much like Rome so you're a papist not 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 that oh you have kind of papal tendencies but you're a papist or you're an idolater because you say back the blue I back the police Okay, but the police is not found in the law of God, so you may be called an idolater. And that's really harsh, right? But talk about the biblical use of pejoratives like papist and idolater to directly uh, speak about somebody who is practicing idolatry in this area. Because that's, that was me. Before I, before I repented, I was an idolater. Right. I was a pro-life professional. I used humanism to fight humanism. I was a conservative pulpit poacher. I was an idolater. I could see that label being applied to me before I repented and became a, uh, an abolitionist and Christian reconstructionist. Are these unnecessarily harsh words to use, or what is the purpose for these use? And you wrote about this on, uh, uh, on uh, uh, Kingdom and Abolition. Uh, there is an article uh, titled "Reform Papists Being Offended and Rush Dooney," but just give us a quick snapshot: the use of papists, for example, for somebody who promotes mandatory local church membership. Go ahead. Sure. Well, well, real shortly, it's interesting. Um, somebody who is an evangelical or like a mainline Protestant, like a, like a Presbyterian or a Southern Baptist or something, uh, who thinks that local church membership is a requirement for sanctification or justification or salvation in any sense, is worse than a papist. Mm. Uh, and the reason why they're worse than a papist uh, is because Roman Catholics demand institutional membership in the Roman Catholic Church. They don't actually require membership in a local Roman Catholic Church. They require membership in mm. what they would call the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so a lot of times our small local, like, Reformed Baptist churches, Reformed Presbyterian churches, are actually more strict than the Roman Catholics. Wow. And more papists than the papists. Wow. Um, instead of one big pope, they have lots of little popes, and a little pope is actually going to be a lot more petty oftentimes and tyrannical than a big pope. Mm-hmm. Um so that, that's kind of just a, an interesting point on the, the papist thing. Uh, so whenever we're dealing with harsh language or pejoratives or uh, whatever, uh, oftentimes we focus on the harshness of it or the meanness of it or we focus on how it hurts our feelings or whatever. But we oftentimes don't really think about whether or not what is being said is true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's something we should pause and actually think about. Be like, okay, well, this person said something to me that I don't like. 
Yeah. That happens to me. That happens to Joe Slon. That happens to everybody. They, people say things to us that we don't appreciate. This happens to everybody. So we should pause and think about whether or not what they're saying is true. Now, I will say that if I'm going to go around calling somebody an idolater or a papist or uh, you know, a pro-abort because they have all sorts of uh, exceptions, that they believe abortion's okay as long as they have... You know, um, as long as it's not being hard or whatever, and I call them like pro-choice, I should also be willing to explain that. Yeah. I shouldn't call them a pejorative and then walk away. Yeah. So we should be patient with people. Uh, we can use harsh language sometimes, but harsh language is not always necessary. It's not always good. So it is a case-by-case case sort of thing. It's very hard to, to judge somebody's heart in those kind of discussions. Um, but what we can do is judge them by their words. Yeah. So the way you judge people's words is that you take their words and you take God's law and you say, does this match? Yeah. Does this yeah. match? And I think oftentimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. It just depends. So if somebody delivers man into the dominion of man, but not from the dominion of man, yeah, right? They are practicing idolatry right? because man should not have dominion over man. Right. Right? And so, so they would be right. a... Idolater, <laughs> right? I mean, is that is that fair or what? No, I mean it's fair, and and the yeah. thing is, like, we can be triggered by that kind of language a little yeah. bit, and we can be offended by that language a little bit. But we should also know from scripture and from you know, church history and from what we know about life yeah. and Christianity is that man's heart is a factory of idolatry. Yeah, man's heart is a factory of idols, and it is very easy for us to take even the best of things, whether it's marriage, whether it's the local church, yeah. whether I mean, whatever it is, and create an idol out right. of that. So we have right. to be very, very careful, very, right. very careful that we don't even take good things, right. things that are blessings from God and gifts from God to his people and create idols out of that. Right. And that could be our own personal safety, uh, whether we're fearing the Muslims coming in and killing us or uh, we think all Muslims are going to be rapists or we think the Mexicans are going to take our jobs as if all jobs belong to us yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and sure. not the people who are actually... As if the market the didn't provide, the, as if the market didn't decide, as if right. the state and needed to decide. Exactly, it's kind of schizophrenic, isn't it? It is, and, yeah. and it's, so whenever we're dealing with a harsh word like idolatry or idol or idolatry, I should say, uh, we do have to understand that any idea, any principle, any doctrine, uh, any policy that is against God's law, yeah, is going to be idolatrous because that is supplanting God for your autonomy. Yeah. That's saying, I know better than God. And I'm not I am not saying that everyone's sitting around saying, I know better than God. Yeah. I'm going yeah. to do my thing. But I do think the man's heart is very, very fuzzy about this stuff. And oftentimes we have our own desires, our own fears, our own false ideas that slip in under the surface. And sometimes with the best intentions, we create an idol out of a good thing. And, and that's that's where we have to be very, very careful. So when somebody who we personally don't like, somebody who speaks harshly, somebody who has a reputation for being, you know, a mean guy, says something, right? we should judge his words or her words by the law of God. Mm. Because even the worst person can deliver a message to you from God. Straight up. And uh, we should be... On the other side of that coin, we should be very willing to correct sin, 
sure. in conversations, and we can sin against other Christians within our conversations, and we can be we can be impatient, we can be very irritable, we can. Uh, I mean, I know I get impatient. I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I, I know I get impatient. Where it's like, why don't these people understand? As if it's me that understands things, and it's not God who has blessed me with a little tiny bit of knowledge. Sure. So uh, it's something I was discussing with you a little bit earlier. Uh, something I read from Rush Juni, where uh, oftentimes in our conversations, whether it's on Facebook or social media or just in person, we can become very, very frustrated. And I can even say sin in our attitude towards other Christians and other people on social media. And, and what that is, is us playing God. Right. What that is, is us playing God because it's not me that changed my heart. It's not me that that uh, illuminated truth within God's word. It's not me that is sanctifying myself outside of the Holy Spirit. It's God that does that. So if I'm trying to force sanctification upon other people or force illumination upon other people and I'm becoming frustrated and angry and irritable with them, yeah. it's essentially me playing God. Amen. So we should Amen. exhort people. We should correct them. We should debate them. Sometimes we should be harsh. Right. But we need to also understand that we're not God. Amen. Amen. That's a, that, that's a word to cut right to my heart. You know, uh, we have to, we have to leave ourselves. We have, look, man, we got to check our own egos at the door. We have to consider others greater than ourselves. Uh, Philippians two, three, in all of these interactions and the more truth that God has blessed us with, the more that we need to be humble in delivering. And now that, that means, look, that, that, that doesn't mean don't use, uh, pejoratives, but it does mean that we have to have the right spirit about it. You know, we can't be trying to determine what somebody else believes because that is only the job of the spirit. And I needed to hear that for myself, really, because I think I've been idolatrous with that on several different conversations on several different occasions. So consider this my repentance for that right there uh, from Joe Salon. I try to think of a specific instance, but I need to repent for that, for trying to change your mind because I know it's true and you just don't. And I sacrifice for this, so you're going to sacrifice for this. Like, I'm telling you, that is wickedness, man. We need to present the truth and let God, let the Spirit of God move, um, using wisdom, so on and so forth. Look, do you have a closing exhortation for us? We got to wrap this thing up. Uh, we're going to do a quick closing exhortation uh, with John, and we're also going to take maybe a few questions. So get them ready now, pop them on the bottom, but we're going to be answering these questions kind of fast. So you can also inbox your questions to Reconstructionist Radio Facebook or uh, War Room at Reconstructionist Radio Facebook or Joe Salant Facebook or John Andrew Reasoner Facebook. Any one of those, if we can't get to your question right here, please do so. Closing exhortation, my brother. Something that's been said a lot by abolitionists um, over the last couple of years is that we don't serve a cause, we serve a king. Uh, yes, we want to save the babies, obviously, but ultimately we serve a king. Uh, that king is Christ Jesus. So to understand that idea as a core foundation of abolitionism is serving Christ Jesus and not a cause, uh, that applies to all spheres of life. And so although I'm, of course, extremely thankful for every abolitionist on earth, and the abolitionist movement is diverse, it's very diverse, uh, I think it would be very beneficial to keep on hitting that same beat, which is like, 
our cause is Christ, our cause is Christ, our cause is Christ, not our cause is saving babies. And what that what that means is applying the same sort of concepts that brought about abolitionism, this kind of uh, Schaeferian presuppositional sort of like covenantal thinking about social evils that are institutionalized and apply that to all other spheres of life. And I, I think there has been a greater and greater unity on these things over time, and we have a long way of go, to go. And of course, I don't have any uh, delusions. I, I know there's going to be lots of diversity, and that's that's good and fine, but there's not a neutrality on these issues. So I do uh, basically want to exhort the abolitionist movement to consider all things the same way that you would consider abortion. Um, and of course, I want to also exhort the reconstructionist movement and look at social e- evils in a covenantal way, in a presupp- presuppositional way, and not view abortion or how the government um, how the government addresses abortion in a way that assumes neutrality on the government's part where all you look at is the results of laws or the hypothetical results of laws and not whether or not the law itself is Mm. wicked. Right. Because any law, and this is something abolitionists say all the time, but it needs to be said again and again and again, any law that could essentially end with, and then you can kill the babies, is a law advocating murder. Yes. Even if it could at least possibly hypothetically cut down on some murder, it's a law that is saying, and then you can kill the baby. So what does God's law has to have to say about that? Are we going to talk about the pragmatics, about the hypothetical outcome of those laws? Or are we going to talk about the ethical standard yeah. that we have that could be that should be addressed to all things, including the law itself, not just the hypothetical results of that law that could or could not come about? Amen. Amen. Good word. A uh, couple minutes for some questions. If I don't see some fast, I'm going ra- to wrap this thing up. Uh, this episode will be uh, rolling from the War Room Reconstructionist radio site. And that will come in probably about two weeks. Thank you all so much for tuning in to the live Facebook feed. We have some really, really, really cool stuff coming on, uh, coming up uh, with the War Room Reconstructionist Radio. Bill Evans has a fire topic, a fire topic about preparing for judgment, about being ready, about being the bride of Christ and being self-sustaining. That's going to be coming up. Uh, my man, Carrie Appling, I'm calling you out right now. Brother, you're going to be on the War Room boots on the ground with your boy, man. You can't say no. Uh, Carrie Appling, you're going to be coming on very shortly as well. We have resources that we post consistently on each of our Facebook pages. And if you are, um, if you have listened to this episode today and you're like, well, this is the first I've been hearing this kind of stuff. How will we live without police? How will we live without jails? How will we live? Well, I mean, what does that look like? What is what? I mean, give me a longer definition of Christian Reconstructionism. Give me the history of it. Go to ReconstructionistRadio.com and get plugged into the resources section. There are books on tape. There have been recorded books over there. You can actually sign up to be a narrator and contribute to the ministry by narrating a book and putting it up on ReconstructionistRadio.com. The podcasts are absolutely fired. This is how I deprogram myself 
from the seminary education that I get in the ministry industrial complex. It's by going to reconstructionistradio.com, listening to Acts to the Root, listening to uh, uh, Restoring America One County at a Time by Joel McDermott, listening to that Post Mill Report, listening to that Abolitionist Radio, listening, tuning in, of course, to the War Room, Boots on the Ground. I'm your boy, Joe Salon. I have been so honored uh, to be with John, uh, uh, Andrew Reisner, Scholar John, my man, up here in Norman, Oklahoma, the same site as the Toby Harmon inter- interview, which y'all got to check out. Keep an eye out for those episodes coming on in the future. Get yourself plugged in with the resources. You can always hit your boy on Facebook. Really exciting stuff coming on in the war. And look, we're going to win this battle. I don't know what that's going to look like. But we're going to win this war in the name of Jesus because King Jesus is not a loser in history. We have an optimistic outlook on this because that optimistic outlook comes from the word of God himself. Love y'all. Thank y'all for tuning in. Appreciate you for, for, for blessing us in the war room. I learned a lot, man. Appreciate that. Thanks, Jim. All right. Awesome. Oh, one last thing. Where do they find you one more time online? Uh, either Facebook, John Andrew Reisner, KingdomAndAbolition.com, and I contribute at the uh, AmericanVision.com. Okay, contribute at the AmericanVision.com, KingdomAndAbolition.com. My man is super accessible. He's willing to educate if you're will if you have ears to hear and a heart to receive. John Andrew Reisner, thank you so much, my friend. Appreciate you. Awesome, you. awesome. Thank you for joining us in the war room. Please enjoy the nation's rage, Psalm two. By my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples thought in vain? Seeking to rid themselves of Christ's dominion. A theme that's true in any age. Or tell me why do the heathen nations rage? Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.